tragic events in general, but especially national tragedies, uh, have a way of embedding themselves into a children's memory banks. Um, you know, so for some of us, that was Space Shuttle Challenger. For others, uh, that was 9-11. And for some of you, it was JFK. I can tell you what was embedded in Jesus' memory, actually. So he would have been about 10 years old, and in the northern, you know, he grew up in Galilee, northern part of Israel. At that time, uh, the Romans captured a, a, a large force of Jewish men. They called them rebels. Uh, I'm sure they didn't think of themselves that way. But, I mean, they would have been familiar to all the people living there in the north. 2,000 or so men were captured, according to the historians. And the Romans, they... They crucified all of them. They crucified two, there were 2,000 crosses which lined the roads and the hillsides of northern Israel. And Jesus would have remembered that. About 60 years later, when the Romans sacked the city of Jerusalem, historians tell us that they crucified such a large number of inhabitants of the city, they actually ran out of wood. And so they had to stop the crucifixions until they could go out into another region and actually import more wood into, into the city. They crucified a lot of people. And you probably know this. You know, crucifixion was a, very much a political statement. It was a way of saying, don't you dare cross us because we are in charge. Like literally, don't cross us. So why was Jesus crossed? Why was Jesus crucified? You can respond to that with a series of historical answers. For instance, you could say the chief priests were angry because of what we just read in Matthew 21 because of what he did in the temple. They were angry for how he was upsetting the temple. The Romans were upset. They were suspicious because they thought he was some kind of rebel leader. And so he was crucified as such. The Pharisees, they hated him because he claimed to be the son of God. And they considered that, appropriately enough, blasphemy. And so they wanted to kill him for that reason. And then you could even answer the question by saying, you know, Jesus died because his followers failed to protect him. And one of his followers actually betrayed him. All of those historical answers are true. All of those are legitimate. But you can also answer the question, why did Jesus, why was he crucified, with a series of theological answers or divine reasons. What is the reason of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God? What are the reasons, as far as God was concerned, for the crucifixion? And that's what our passage is about this morning. Romans 3, verses 20 through 26. Paul is going to give us the theological reasons. He's going to do so in a very densely packed passage. I mean, he jumps from one kind of language to another kind of language very quickly, and I'm going to try my best to break it down. But in essence, he's giving us three kinds of languages, word pictures to consider this by. The language of the court of law, the language of the Passover, and the language of the temple ceremonies and sacrifices. And it is basically in this really tightly woven set of verses, we hear the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's purpose and the horrendous death that took place 2,000 years ago. So let's read in verse 20. 
No one will be declared righteous in God's sight, or no one will be, the word here is justified in God's sight by the works of the law, that is, by obeying the Ten Commandments, or obeying the other ceremonial factor, uh, aspects of the law, circumcision and, and keeping a kosher table and observing the Sabbath. Rather, Paul says, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That would have been a very surprising thing to say or to hear if you were his audience. Because when he's writing to the church that is in Rome, as best we can gather, most of these were either Jewish people, formerly Jewish people who become Christians, or these were Gentile people who were very familiar with Judaism and kind of respected Judaism, and then they became Christians. And so there, this, is, this would be an audience that has such a high view of Torah. Like the law is so good, they would think. The law, they would have just imagined the law is something that can save us. And Paul, Paul also has a very high view of Torah, but he says... No, actually, Torah cannot save you. All Torah can do is show you that you can't keep it. Verse 21. So Torah is not going to save, but, but now, quite apart from the law, law Torah, though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, now God's righteousness has been displayed. And of course, the major question is, how is God's righteousness on display and the answer, it is on display through the man who is faithful to the Torah. It is on display through the one true Israelite, the man who fulfilled Psalm 24, which we just read about, the man who, whose hands were clean and who lived the life that Israel was supposed to live and, and didn't. And so God's righteousness here is a language of his saving righteousness. It's on display through the life, and then especially the death and resurrection of this one true Israelite, Jesus Christ. Verse 22. And this righteousness of God, the saving righteousness, comes to humanity through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we talked about that at the end of Romans 1, how God's indictment on mankind is that we have exchanged the glory of God. We exchanged it for idols. And then Brian, last Sunday from Romans chapter 2, showed how even if we're religious, we're still deeply idolatrous. We have fallen short and have exchanged the glory of God for cheap knockoffs. And in that respect, we Jew and Gentile alike are, are condemned. But verse 24, but we are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25, for God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The rest of verses 25 and 26, if you're still following me, uh, it's kind of confusing what he's trying to say. And I'll, I'll say what I think he's trying to say before I read it. I think what he's trying to say is that the cross, the effects of the cross, swing in both directions in human history. The effects of the cross go B.C., before him, and the effects of the cross go A.D., you know, Anno Domini, after him. 
So that God did this, verse 25, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, that is in his merciful patience, he left the sins committed beforehand by, I think, the Old Testament believers. He let those go unpunished. Not because he was just winking at sin and not worrying about it, but because he was going to take the cross and deal with it. And so he demonstrates his righteousness B.C., verse 26, and then he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time and future times. So as to what? So as to be just and the justifier and the one who justifies those who have faith in, in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Amen. Back in 1994, there was an American man by the name of Michael Fay. Michael Fay was 18 years old. He was an American citizen residing in Singapore. Michael Fay was uh, caught spray-painting graffiti on the sides of cars. And if I'm not mistaken, he was actually spray-painting political graffiti on, on the sides of cars there in Singapore. And in Singapore, the punishment for vandalism is caning. Does anybody remember this story? Yeah. So caning. What, they strip you. They, they strip your buttocks. They leave you exposed. And they take a big old cane that they have soaked all night so that it won't splinter. And they, you know, they administer strokes of the cane. And so Michael Caine... Or, or sorry, Michael Fay <laughs> was sentenced to six strokes. And the reason this was a big deal um, was because American politicians kind of got upset about it. There was an outcry among the political community about how unfair this was, that Michael Caine was going to be, <laughs> I did it again, <laughs> that Michael Fay was going to be Caine for vandalism. So you had all these politicians standing up and saying, is there any way that we could, we could change this? It, it went so far up in our government that even President Clinton intervened. He personally spoke to the Singaporean government and said, is there something we can do to, can, to avoid this? Like give the guy community service or give him a few days in jail. And do you remember what Singapore said? They said, no. These are our rules. This is the punishment. I kind of respect them for, for having said that. So the, it was a big international hullabaloo. Lots of politicians that were incensed. But you know what? Not a single one of those American politicians stood up and said, well, if you're going to do that, then why don't you cane me? And no, nobody said that. Instead of, instead of him, why not me? What if they did say that? Here's my question to you. Would that be just? Would that be a satisfaction of justice? And here, what I'm trying to do is walk you into one of the real moral questions, and honestly, one of the major criticisms of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's this. How can moral guilt and punishment transfer from one person to another? You know, Michael Fay's caning for vandalism is one thing, but what if you were to take a truly horrible atrocity such as the school shooting in Stoneman Douglas? Uh, what if a random guy off the street came forward and said, I, would, I volunteer to take the penalty 
for the for the gunman's uh, you know behave sins his crimes i will take the penalty so that they would go free you know absolutely nobody would be satisfied with that as though that was a, a proper executing of justice so then how can jesus die for us why is it why is that right and i have a couple of ideas for that question have you ever asked that question before because i think it's an important one well first we ought not to think of Christ dying to deal with our sins as a simple swap of a random innocent person for a bunch of guilty people. It's not taking a random guy off the street. It's taking Jesus the Christ. And Christ means king. It is taking the king. It's the death of a king, a king who can legally represent his people, before the bar of God's justice. Another way of putting it, Christ can be our substitute because he is the representative. And while I know there's not a perfect analogy to this, I think you would agree, hopefully, that a king is no ordinary citizen. Like, a king, of all people, occupies a unique moral space in relationship to others. He is Unique in his moral ability to represent people. That's what the Bible seems to be hinting about. You have a king who comes in on, on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, which for us, that seems kind of like a weak entrance. But for them, they understood the back of a donkey meant that he was the messianic king. My other answer to that would be, I wonder if this is where the Lord's Prayer might not be um, helpful for us to consider. So there are two versions of the Lord's Prayer. You, you, may, uh, you may have grown up with one, you may have grown up with the other. I grew up with the one where we say, Lord, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. How many of you learned that one growing up? So that is from the Gospel of Luke. It's interesting because the majority, you in the front can't see, but like everybody's hand goes up. That's from the Gospel of Luke. Then I become a Presbyterian Christian, and the very first time I'm praying the Lord's Prayer in a Presbyterian church, and I go to say trespasses, and they say debts, and I'm like, why? Well, the forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors is simply taken from Matthew's gospel, the Matean version of the Lord's Prayer. And I wonder if there isn't something uniquely beneficial about thinking of sins in terms of a moral debt. Because if I owe you $1,000 and I can't pay it, somebody in their mercy might come along and be willing to assume my debt. If you are in debt to someone, then someone else has, they would possibly be able to, to take that debt and pay it for you. And I wonder if this isn't just God's way of signaling to us that if you think of sin in terms of this enormous debt, I mean, it's not a $20 debt, but this, this infinitely large debt that is accrued, on Good Friday, we see that debt being assumed by somebody else. The debt of punishment. It's the debt of punishment that is being paid. Can we say anything more about that punishment? Well, we already did in our service. When we, when we sang Into Your Hands, which is a meditation on, is it Psalm 20, 23, no, 21? I see I'm already blanking on it. Into your hands I commit my spirit. 
It is paying the debt of God forsakenness, isn't it? That's the punishment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The punishment is God forsakenness. The punishment is the darkness, the blackness of the three hours. The punishment is the exclusion from the Father, the, the, the deep darkness of the curse. That is the debt that the Son willingly pays. So then, does that mean, here's a question, I like to ask questions. <laughs> does that mean that the Father looks at the Son on the cross as though he had, in fact, committed all of those sins? Does the Father look at the Son and say, you committed adultery with Bathsheba. You killed your brother Abel. You looked at porn last night. Does the Father regard the Son as having committed all of these actual crimes? My answer to that question would be actually no. He doesn't regard the Son as having done all those things because the Son didn't do those things. And that would be like the greatest legal farce. It would be a complete fiction. It would be the worst legal fiction imaginable for the father to look at his son and say, you did all of that. He, he didn't. But what he is doing, what he's willing to do, what he, what he gladly, freely does, is he's willing to take the debt that you pay for those things, or that, that you owe for those things, and obviously pay it for you. Here's where we get the court, of lang- uh, the, the court of law language. Paul calls this whole thing going on the cross justification, which is a big word. We don't use that word normally. Certainly if you're not a Christian, I doubt that you use, you've heard that word um, very often. What is justification? Justification, if you're taking notes, is God's declaring, kind of like a judge would do so in a court of law, his declaring that a person is acquitted of, their, of the charges, that their debt is paid in full, that they are forgiven and are now in a right relationship with God based on Jesus' death and, and resurrection. For before we were, were guilty, and now we have a new status of being forgiven. I was trying to think through, even in more detail, what is going on on the cross? And what happens for me is all my good ideas come when I'm on a run. So I was on a run Tuesday, and I was trying to really dig down what's happening on the cross. How do we explain the cross? And all of a sudden, I have this image of, here's, here's what I think, like, here's the image I want to give to you. This is the image I want you to take into Good Friday this week. When Jesus dies on the cross, he, he does so, in a sense, having one hand nailed there and having another hand reaching down and he is holding our our hand. See, we are united to him. And I can think of no more like intimate, simple, intimate way to be united to somebody than just to have them hold your hand. And when he's there, he's there because he's holding our hand. You could almost see the holding of hand as this transference of of penalty from him to us. And then when they take him down off of the cross, he's still holding our hand. And when they take him and bury him in the tomb, he's still holding our hand. And then we're basically in the ground behind the rock, the stone, however you want to see it, but holding our hand, and he's going to take us holding his hand out of that grave into a new future, into a new status with a new basis for life. And we come into, we come 
We come back into this world as a new people, as a as no longer Jew and Gentile, but this this new new people who are united to Jesus Christ. Um, so actually, technically, justification doesn't go into effect, into full effect, until he comes back out of the grave. Because Paul will say later on that he was raised for our justification. And so we, he takes us out of the prison and into new life. A great illustration I heard from another pastor, Brian Habig in South Carolina, brought this home to me in a different way. He was talking to his church, I guess... There's been one or two reality television shows recently in the not-so-distant past that focus on people who suffer from the malady of hoarding. Hoarding. People, folk, for, for different reasons, will accumulate so much stuff in their homes. A lot of it will be garbage, and the stuff is inside their homes. It's not just outside, but inside the home, and it becomes a crisis for multiple reasons. Number one, it's not sustainable for a human being to live in a place like that. There's so much stuff in there. You know, there's stuff in their beds. There's, there's stuff in the bathtub. There's stuff in the sinks. Like the whole house is unusable. There are rodents in all this stuff and bugs, and the house is mildewing and, and rotting. Well, typically what happens when you have a person who suffers from hoarding is they can't fix that on, on their own, can they? You, you, they? They become so neurotic. They're so kind of lost. They cannot get on top of that. They are helpless to correct their own problem. Someone has to come in and say, in essence, will you let me handle this? Will you, will you just let me deal with this? Because you can't deal with this. Um, and often that offer is, is refused because the person is just unwilling to let go of control. But one of the kindest thing, things human beings can do for another human being is to see another person in their helpless state and say, let me take that for you. And that is what God is doing in our justification. He is looking at what a mess our lives are. And sometimes it's full of... Um, garbage, and sometimes it's full of good stuff. Uh, there's that moment in Chariots of Fire when Harold Abrams is going to run for the 100-yard dash, and he's competing in the Olympics, and somebody asks him the question, so Harold, why do you, why do you train so hard? What, what is it? Is it for the gold medal? Is it for the acclamation? Is it the fear of failure? Because normally it's one of those two things. It's the glory or the fear. And he gives this profoundly a philosophical answer back. He says, the reason I do it is because when that gun goes off, I know that I have 10 seconds to justify my own existence. But in justification, God is saying, I I give you a justified existence. It's yours. I handle that for you. If you'll receive it. Can I? Can I handle this for you? And you reply back to him, well, how much will it cost me, Lord? And he comes back to you and he says, you know what? It's free. That's what it just said in the passage. Justification, the greatest thing in the world, is free. But you have to let me handle it. Okay, let's move on to the Passover language. And I'm going to show this to you by reading verses 22 through 25. This righteousness, verse 22, 
comes to humanity through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So redemption right there is, is Passover language. Verse 25, there's a torrid debate among New Testament scholars as to the meaning of the Greek word that I have in a little star, if you look in your bulletin, the meaning of that Greek word. Some guys say it means X, and some guys say the the meaning of that word means Y, and what I'm going to say, I'm going to (laughs) cheat and say it means both. Some guys say it means propitiation. A propitiation is what? It is something that turns away the wrath of justice. The best example I can think of this from the Bible is the Jewish Passover, where you have the last of the ten plagues that come upon the land of Egypt. What is the tenth and worst plague? It is the, the death of the firstborn sons in all of the land. There's an angel of death who is going to descend upon the country, and every firstborn child is condemned to die. Is it just the Egyptian children who are going to die? No, every one of them are going to die. But God says to the people through Moses that if you slaughter a lamb and mark the doorways of your house with that lamb's blood, the destroying angel will pass over your home, and his wrath will be averted. So the Passover lamb is exactly what Paul is talking about right there. The propitiation by blood, which satisfies or passes over, or turn, I should say, turns away the wrath of just, justice. But then there's another meaning of that word. Uh, and uh, how do I put it? Um, that same Greek word in the Old Testament is used to designate part of the furniture that was kept in the temple. So there was the Ark of the Covenant. You're probably familiar with that. This golden ark with pictures of angels on the top of it. And it's overlaid in gold. The, the top cover of the ark is a f- just pure gold thick lid. And it had a specific name. It was called the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go into the temple and he would sprinkle blood of the animal on top of the, the, the lid, which was called the mercy seat. Well, the word for mercy seat is the same word that is used here. And so that's why some of the translations actually read that this is Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a mercy seat through faith in his blood. You say, well, what in the world is a mercy seat? Well, you, again, I think it has to do with a throne, It's on this throne, mercy is enthroned. Or on this, from this throne, mercy comes down. It it, it flows down to the people. And so you, you have here, I think you have propitiation, a turning away of wrath, and you have this moving towards people and mercy through the blood of this atoning sacrifice. And this blood turns away the wrath of justice. Uh, Let me see if I can boil things down and land the plane here. Uh, When we say that that Jesus Christ propitiates the wrath of God, I think it's very important that we not misunderstand 
the nature of the cross here? Because I've heard on a lot of occasions a caricature of the cross, and it's, it goes kind of like this. So on the cross, we have this angry father who is torturing this helpless son so that the father can get his wrath placated so that that obstacle of wrath could be moved out of the way so that now the father can be kind and he can just you know, be a kind dad and now love us all. Uh, th- that is a complete mischaracterization of the, the Trinity. The, the Good Friday did not happen so that God could love us. Good Friday happened because he already loved us. Good Friday didn't happen because the Father is just this wrathful, vindictive person, and the Son is just this little weak, 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 uh, weak, weakling. There we go. Um, no, it was the whole Trinity is full of wrath towards sin. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all hate what sin has done to this world. They all hate the oppression, racism, rape, genocide, theft, infidelity, child abuse, all, the, all of it. It's not that we have an angry, vengeful father. We have a father and a son who are incensed at what sin has done to this world. We have a son who also has wrath. So when Augustine famously says that the cross is the pulpit from which Jesus preached his love, he could equally have said the cross is the pulpit from which Jesus preached his justice and his wrath. For it was justice and love that were being met there on that tree. So as we head into Good Friday, there are two things I'd like you to think about as I conclude. Number one, is there someone in your life who you could invite to come on Friday or this next Sunday? Is there a coworker, a friend, a colleague? Because what we know is that Easter is just one of those cultural moments, one of the few remaining spaces in our, in our society where people are more inclined to respond to a personal invitation to come. If you're like me, you always feel guilty of being, about being terrible in evangelism. Well, this is pretty low-hanging fruit. All you have to do is just give a personal invitation and ask them to come. You have my word. I promise I will not go through all the details and make it as confusing as I may have done this morning. Um, but I believe they'll, if you would just invite them to come, they will hear the power of God in the gospel of God. And you know, God may choose to do something wonderful. I got an, a message in the mail, or a little mailer from Eagle Christian Church announcing their Good Friday services and their Easter egg hunts and their Sunday, Easter Sunday services. I think they have like seven services going on this weekend. Uh, Ten Mile Christian, they probably have ten services going on. So I mean, we've got all of these churches around the Treasure Valley where a lot of people will receive invitations. Let's not only pray for all saints, but let's pray for all of those churches, for all those pastors to be able to speak a powerful word through the Holy Spirit. And pray that for me, and pray that for all of them. Really simple. Number two, the other thing I want you to think about is when you look up on the cross on Good Friday, what is it that you see? What is your image of the cross? I've told you this before. It still blows my mind that 
there was a study done by forensic anthropologists several years ago where they studied extensively the skeletal remains of first century Jewish men. Remember this? And what they determined after looking at all of these skeletons from the first century is the average, the, the height of the average first century male Jew was five feet, one inches tall, uh, one inch tall, and the average weight was 110 pounds. So does that mean that Jesus was 5'1", 110? And well, he was probably a whole lot closer to that than 6'2", 180. What's your picture of him there? I see, I think we, we don't appreciate just how... It's a frail man that's hanging there who is bearing an infinite large burden on his shoulders. And when Jesus um, was tried on Friday morning by the Jewish Sanhedrin, he was convicted of the charge of blasphemy. One of these funny historical facts is that if Jesus was convicted of blasphemy in any other part of Israel in that day, he would not have been crucified. He would have been stoned. Because that's how you dealt with a blasphemer is you stoned them to death. In fact, we get the picture of everybody picking up a rock and pelting someone, but the way they normally stone people back in the first century is they would take them to a cliff, to a high precipice, and they would push the accused off the cliff, and they would fall down onto the rocks, and then if they were still alive, they would have been pelted by stones, and, and they would have died that way. But I mean, anywhere else in Jerusalem, he dies by stoning. But Jerusalem was was controlled by the Romans and heavily regulated so that they did not give the power, the death penalty, the power of execution to the Jews. They were not allowed to kill anybody in Jerusalem in the first century. The reason that Jesus Christ gets crucified is because the Jews have to convince the Romans to do it for them. So you have a man hanging up there, a very I think frail man. I mean, what do you see? Do you see Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, all the blood and the gore uh, on a very small, frail man? I think you should. Do you see a travesty of justice where you have this perfectly pure, innocent man who has been killed by lawless men? Uh, You should. Do you see the only sinless man in the world being put to death? Yes, you should. And you should also see, what is he holding? He is holding your hand. I want you to see his hand in yours. For you are united to him in that cross. And you will follow him into that grave. And you are left waiting for the sun to shine <laughs> come Sunday morning.